Hello and welcome to the uh, February 28th, um, 2012 edition of CNI Conversations. I'm Cliff Lynch, the director of CNI, and I'm joined by the coalition's associate director, Joan Lippincott. Uh, today we're mostly going to report on some conferences that we've attended and also discuss a couple of reports and upcoming events. And the place where I want to begin is with the American Association for the Advancement of Science meeting. Uh, AAAS, as it's known, is um, the organization that publishes Science Magazine and uh, um, serves as sort of a um, second uh, cross-disciplinary society for many, many people involved in the sciences. It has an enormous membership and it does an annual meeting that um, uh, features presentations from all disciplines of science as well as looking at um, sort of cross-cutting issues like scholarly communication or policies about um, privacy and human subjects or cyber infrastructure and uh, data intensive science uh, that cut across the scientific disciplines. This year, for the first time in a long time, uh, AAAS uh, actually met outside the United States and um, uh, gave me the opportunity to explain to uh, Canadian immigration that I was in Vancouver uh, to attend a meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Um, it was a um, well-attended, intense meeting um, with uh, beautiful sort of wintry Vancouver scenery uh, um, around the uh, conference center which sits right down on the uh, bay in Vancouver. Uh, that's where the meeting was held. Um, and I just want to note a couple of um, things of particular interest. Um, there was a tremendously good sequence of talks on metagenomics, which is basically about taking DNA sequences not of a specific individual organism that's been isolated, but of all of the organisms in a given environmental setting, like a, a spoonful of soil or a spoonful of um, seawater, or indeed a, um, a section of the human skin. Um, uh, and applying DNA sequencing techniques to try and understand the very complex um, uh, ecology of um, bacteria and viruses that are living in those environments. And um, really it's proving to be a um, an amazing tool for understanding things that we've not had much visibility into before because uh, we really don't know how to isolate and culture um, uh, the vast, vast majority of bacteria, for example, that live in soil or, or seawater. Um, the thing that was truly striking to me about this, though, was um, that, uh, you know, with my um, kind of data management perspective on it, um, was uh, I was just picturing the 
um, the people working in this area with their high-speed gene sequencers, um, creating a whole new massive collection of um, sequence data um, that now is not tied necessarily to individual human beings, for example, to try and understand um, genetic variation, but to specific points in our um, in our environment, either our natural or our built environment, and trying to understand the um, ecology of the um, the collection of um, microbes that flourish in those environments. Um, uh, it's it's really another fascinating new form of um, data intensive um, of science, and uh, um, it was really fascinating to be able to learn a little more about that. Um, another set of presentations that were quite interesting dealt with the um, mining of social media to um, uh, track um, the emergence or spread of diseases. And some of this will be, you know, fairly familiar work going back a few years. For example, the um, Centers for Disease Control and Google have collaborated for some time in trying to use um, certain ge geolocated uh, Google searches to track flu epidemics and outbreaks of other diseases. But um, uh, there was quite an interesting discussion of the. Um, the limits of this and some of the new um, work going on in this area. Um, and um, as is often the case, uh, AAAS also had some superb um, sessions on data-intensive science and policy around um, uh, the making public of data. Um, a couple of uh, talks in that vein that were particularly striking to me um, were a presentation about the data collection um, surrounding the environmental impact of the uh, uh, British Petroleum um, oil uh, spill in the uh, Gulf of Mexico and um, some of the work that went on around that and the coordination or lack of coordination among the various parties that were collecting data for, in some cases, very different motivations, some trying to understand um, from a scientific basis, the environmental impact. Others really much more concerned with laying the basis for various kinds of legal actions and fines. Um, the other really um, striking presentation from my point of view on um, uh, public data was one given by Atul Butte, um, who is a um, physician at uh, Stanford University, runs a lab there. Um, you know, often the question is asked about, well, how can we get some handle on the economic impact of saving and reusing data? When does it, how does it really pay off? Can we demonstrate some success stories? And he's got a, um, 
uh, a major initiative going where he's essentially mining various public um, uh, data sets and using these to identify candidates for um, lab tests and then later clinical trials and basically starting to spin off a whole series of startups and license agreements from it and um, he has an absolutely fascinating story to tell. Um, another piece of this which I hadn't really understood was the extent to which you can now basically um, uh, outsource your um, bench work um, with mice and things like this to uh, contract labs. Um, it's actually uh, become very reminiscent to me of the phenomenon that started showing up in the late 1980s where people would design um, uh, semiconductor chips by computer and then send them off to fabrication facilities to have small runs of, of chips produced without ever you know building their own fab line or, or anything else and um, it was really interesting to see how far at least some of the activities in biomedical discovery seem to be uh, moving down that road although I'm sure um, you know this is this is just uh, one of a number of you know conflicting and countervailing trends there but um, certainly an absolutely fascinating presentation so those are a few words on AAAS um, the other meeting that I want to say a few words about is uh, the annual personal archiving meeting which was held in uh, San Francisco hosted by the Internet Archive um, last uh, Thursday and Friday. Um, for various reasons I was only able to attend the Thursday session but I came away from that with a few observations that I did want to share here. Um, one that was very striking is the work that the Library of Congress is doing to kind of legitimize the whole idea of personal archiving. They are getting tremendous numbers of queries now from the general public about how do I save my digital photographs? Um, how do I save my um, my digital files or my email, although it seems like um, digital images are, are the most popular question. Um, and they've come up with some very, you know, sort of simple, straightforward suggestions for people um, who aren't terribly technically sophisticated, but um, nonetheless pragmatic ones. Uh, they have had a number of preservation days that have been or um, preservation um, uh, you know open houses which have been very well attended and I believe they're starting to make this material available to other public libraries with the notion that um, they too should be doing outreach to their publics and their communities in this area and I think that it's really been an important um, uh, step in helping uh, the general public to recognize issues in this area and to create a um, new role for uh, libraries as a sort of a trusted source of advice in this area. Um, 
There were a number of other themes that were surfacing um, in the talks that I heard at Personal Archiving. One which really picked up um, very much from um, some of the presentations last year dealt with the challenges of archiving social media and the sort of um, murky responsibility about um, uh, you know, who can make the decision to archive or not to archive what in a sort of a shared social setting and how you, you managed to get enough pieces together so that you had some meaningful representation of what, um, you know, a set of interactions among a circle of friends or colleagues in an environment like Facebook or Google um, Plus uh, might look like. Um, closely related to that were some really interesting issues surfacing around family archives. Um, you know, if you think about the sort of shoebox of photos or the photo album or the letters um, that, you know, are passed on from generation to generation inside many families, um, uh, they tend to have a very artifactual kind of quality. Um, now we see families with these sort of shared digital spaces that represent the family collection and all of a sudden the question of, well, who constitutes the family? What's this? What's the scope of the family group and how is access passed around rather than physical control of the, you know, book or shoebox of, of photographs and uh, videos? And this turns out to be a very subtle and, and kind of nasty problem, um, which um, uh, is um, flaring up in uh, the management of many of these family collections. Um, it's very poorly understood what people's expectations and social practices are here, and there are um, a number of people who are starting to study this um, and to get a better understanding of what's going on. Um, the other thing I came across in this area, which was quite interesting, um, ties back to some of the very early conversations, Circea, let's say, 2008 or thereabouts about um, personal archives, and in particular the question of what does this mean for collections of personal papers, literary archives, things of that nature. And one of the speculations that um, several of us floated around back then was that um, organizations who were interested in holding the personal papers of uh, literary or other intellectual figures would have to intervene much earlier in order to get these and indeed work with the authors um, during their active years rather than just at the very end of their life when you're trying to buy or uh, get donated a collection um, to ensure that they save the right kind of stuff. Um, 
you know, perhaps asking them to um, uh, save intermediate copies of manuscripts or things like that. Um, uh, and that this could indeed lead to a sort of a market where various um, archives and research libraries had to make judgments about the potential impact of people pretty early in their career, and this could in fact be a, um, you know, a sort of a uh, way of um, gaining recognition or prestige, you know, when um, some very prestigious archive has reached out to you early to um, uh, make you one of their contributors. Um, and there's some evidence that this is actually coming to pass. Um, I understand that, for example, the um, Ransom Archive at the University of Texas has started doing um, uh, some of this kind of outreach. So it's, it's interesting to see uh, some of these um, speculations uh, of four or five years ago actually now starting to hit the ground um, uh, in terms of reality. Um, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Joan at this point, who's going to report on a couple of things, including the EDUCAUSE Learning Initiative Conference, and then I'll come back and conclude with a few of my own um, uh, comments to add to hers about the ELI meeting. Joan, over to you. Thanks, Cliff. Um, I'd like to start out by mentioning uh, that the Horizon Report Higher Education Initiative was just released, in fact, at a session at the ELI conference a couple of, year, uh, couple of weeks ago. And for the past few years, I've had the honor of serving on the advisory board, and a few people um, whom I've encountered at meetings have asked me, well, how exactly does the Horizon Report come up with the trends? Uh, that they uh, mention in the report. And it's done through a modified Delphi process, whereby the New Media Consortium, or NMC staff, along with assistance from board members, develop a list of trends along with descriptions and links to relevant materials. And then they send this list in a voting process to advisory board members, and they select their top trends that will have an impact on education in three time horizons one year or less, two to three years, and four to five years. And then they go through that process. Uh, they take the ones that receive the most votes and uh, ask the advisory board members to vote a second time to identify the very top trends. Um, in the one year or less horizon in the new 2012 report, mobile apps and tablet computing are the key trends for that short time frame. And if you're developing programs related to these technologies, I encourage you to take a look at the descriptions in the horizon report of the specific instances of the use of these technologies in teaching and learning and the links to some specific projects. It's a great way to get a leg up on um, developing your own work in that area. In addition, the report identifies some key overall trends affecting higher ed uh, and then key challenges, again based on issues selected by the advisory board. One example of a trend in this report is, quote, the world of work is increasingly collaborative, driving changes in the way student projects are structured. And then they describe that in more detail. And one of the key challenges is digital media literacy 
continues its rise in importance as a key skill in every discipline and profession. And the reason that it's a challenge is that this uh, need is generally not being addressed in the curriculum. So I highly recommend uh, to you the Horizon Report. I also want to mention that I've been involved um, in assisting Tom Hickerson, who's Vice Provost and University Librarian at University of Calgary in Canada, with developing a conference called Designing Libraries for the 21st Century. And it will be held at the Taylor Family Digital Library at the University of Calgary on May 16th and 18th. There will be sessions on visioning a new facility or renovation, design, the planning process, architects' perspectives, technologies, and lessons learned from um, libraries who have recently uh, developed new facilities and are at least a year out from opening. Speakers from a variety of institutions will be uh, presenting talks and there will be a number of panels. There will be a lot of uh, information about what has uh, been developed specifically at Calgary, but in addition at some other really outstanding facilities. I'll put out an announcement uh, about the conference on CNI Announce shortly when the website and registration information are available. In the meantime, you can also take a look at a video on the University of Calgary Taylor Family Digital Library that we took at one of our CNI meetings, and it's on our website, and it's really terrific presentation will whet your appetite to register for this conference. And then I want to mention um, a few of the sessions at the ELI conference. So the Educause Learning Initiative, or ELI, holds an annual conference, and both Cliff and I attended this year. There are a wide variety of programs, both plenary sessions, uh, breakout sessions, and one aspect that I enjoy a lot are the experience information technology where you get to use some actual devices in a program and I always try to take advantage of at least one session like this uh, like that this year I did one using iPads and group work and that was in very enjoyable I specifically wanted to mention um, a session it was a brief session in a breakout called Special Collections Using Augmented Reality to Enhance Learning and Teaching, or SCARLET, <clears throat> which is the acronym, developed at the University of Manchester with, with some funding from JISC. Um, they're pioneering augmented reality with special collections in this project. Basically, they bring students into the special collections room of the library where rare items are exhibited, and they've pre-selected some items and specific pages. They provide the students in the class with print handouts, which they then view through a handheld device with an augmented reality application, and that provides students with context. It basically surrounds the page with information on the illustrations, on the text, on the historical period, etc. I thought it was one of the more interesting, uh, cutting-edge kinds of sessions that I saw. I'm not absolutely convinced that this is the future of special collections, teaching and learning, but I think it's a great experiment and we can learn um, from it. 
I also found Chris Deedy's talk in a plenary session uh, really excellent. He's from Harvard and described um, the new types of student engagement and highlighted the role of interactive media in education. He showed a video of some middle school students in a class using eco-mobile environment developed at Harvard. The students were at a pond in a fieldwork setting, capturing data about the water and the surrounding environment using mobile devices. The enthusiasm of the students and their ability as middle school students to articulate some of the scientific concepts they were learning was impressive. I have found, though, with many of these types of programs that they don't go a further step to provide students with links or a process for finding additional information resources to augment their experiences in the field or get quick references. I hope information professionals will work with developers of these kinds of programs to encourage um, students and help them understand how to augment their education through access to additional information resources outside of a closed system. And then finally, I'd mention a really outstanding panel on learning analytics. Many sessions at conferences I go to are described as debates, but few shape up as genuine debates. But this one was. There were four panelists, each with a different view of the value and um, or a critique of learning at analytics as they're being applied today. And the panel included Randy Bass from Georgetown, Gardner Campbell, who's now at Virginia Tech, John Fritz from UMBC, and John Campbell at Purdue University. They were all articulate and passionate, and it was really an outstanding program. And I think Cliff's going to talk a little bit more about uh, learning analytics, so I'll hand this back to him. Thanks, Joan. And I, I, I also was at that uh, panel discussion and uh, have to say it was one of the genuine high points of the meeting. And um, I was also very pleased that we were able to get Gardner Campbell to join us for the uh, spring CNI meeting. He's not going to be talking about analytics, although I'm sure if you ask him about them in the Q&A, he certainly has his views on them, um, uh, but rather about some other issues. Uh, issues in teaching and learning, and uh, uh, he's, a, he's, I think, a very, very good thinker and uh, very articulate on these issues. Um, so if you've not had an opportunity to, um, to hear him, um, uh, you'll find that, I think, very interesting. Um, I want to say some things more generally about analytics because um, that certainly was, I would say, one of the overarching themes of the ELI meeting. It was also um, a very um, significant theme at the uh, EDUCAUSE meeting in October. Um, But here, given the more specific focus on um, teaching and learning, uh, you know, um, it, it was really a very kind of dominant idea. Um, it's striking to me now how many different activities and practices analytics cover. Um, they can range from the very micro, for example, um, a teacher gathering data from a set of um, 
uh, interactive um, uh, drill um, programs uh, that that's indicating that a number of students are having trouble factoring a certain kind of polynomial or something, and that uh, the the uh, faculty member needs to go over that again. Um, you know, very kind of micro things where you're you're comparing the kind of mistakes that students are making in exercises against other students and um, categorizing them in specific ways. So that's the sort of the most extremely micro version of it. Then you have these sort of very macro versions, which um, you know really are, are are the stuff of guidance counselors and admissions officers and things like that. You know, people with um, your grades and um, uh, your transcript from high school, out of your socioeconomic background, um, uh, and uh, have have not done well when they've tried to take all of these courses at once as a freshman. And therefore, um, we think you have a high probability of getting into trouble and advise you against doing it. And then there's everything in between, um, all of the sort of ways of predicting, for example, that a student is having trouble and is in danger of failing a class, um, where hopefully um, uh, something can be done to help the student or counsel the student um, uh, before it's too late, um, and they wind up uh, with a uh, failed class on their transcript, um, and everything in between. All of this seems to um, be fair game for analytics. Basically, the idea that you can capture some data points about a student and by comparing, and you can use them in a predictive fashion by um, comparing them against a large database of other student experiences. And um, I have to say that Many people are excited about the possibilities here, particularly the possibilities of um, of identifying students that are at risk in various ways and um, uh, helping them to sort that out in a timely fashion. Um, and at the same time, I detect that many people are deeply uncomfortable with these. Um, they're uncomfortable with the notion that um, uh, you know, we can we can easily measure outcomes that um, those outcomes are necessarily embodied in a, a simple grade. Um, that often you uh, it may be better to ask questions like, "Well, how did they do the next year in uh, um, additional courses in their major?" Uh, rather than what grade did they get out of a foundational course. Um, there are so many questions here, and I guess um, I particularly find myself uneasy about the macro analytics, the, the ones that um, really suggest to people that by doing this, you have a um, you know you have a high probability of failure, or people who are doing what you're doing fail more often than they succeed. Um, 
I'm uh, that's that's helpful advice to give to people sometimes, but sometimes they need to try anyway, and sometimes they will succeed, and sometimes they'll learn something whether they succeed at it or fail at it, and um, uh, I. I worry about um, certain kinds of analytics with the best intentions in the world um, uh, being used to make it very hard for people to have the opportunities to do those things. Um, I think, though, that um, people are starting to engage analytics at Various uh, micro to macro levels um, in a in a very thoughtful way now, and um, uh, this this debate is really beginning as as we saw at this um, at this uh, plenary panel session that Joan described. Uh, the debate has really become quite nuanced and quite thoughtful. Um, I think this is an area that we're going to want to watch carefully in the coming years and I think the other piece of it that's going to be terrifically important is that people understand what data is being collected on them and what use to what use it's being put to um, the notion that um, uh, you know this this data is um, being captured and reused in obscure ways um, uh, could I think be potentially very disturbing and um, uncomfortable um, uh, for people if it's not um, if it's not uh, done in a fairly transparent fashion so um, all in all I would say um, uh, the ELI meeting was a excellent collection of um, of presentations and uh, demonstrations of new developments and one that certainly gave both of us a good deal of food for thought and with that, I'm going to conclude today's conversation. Um, I hope that uh, Joan or I will see some of you at the IMLS WebWise meeting uh, towards the end of this week in Baltimore or elsewhere in the near future. Thanks for joining us today.